Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. I'm Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the network. And today I'm interviewing Ron Suni, longtime historian of Eastern Europe and of Armenia and Anatolia. He's one of the editors, along with Fatma Mugay Gurchek and Norman Neymark, of the outstanding recent collection titled A Question of Genocide, Armenians and Turks at the End of the Ottoman Empire, published by Oxford University Press in 2011. The book examines the destruction of the Armenian communities of Anatolia and of other communities there as well from a variety of perspectives. The essays range from discussions of the economic and political reasons for the increasing antagonism between the peoples of the regions to examinations of policy level uh, debates about the killing of the First World War era to discussions about why studying these events has been so difficult. The essays are uniformly excellent. They collectively advance our understanding of the genocide a great deal. I recommend the book highly, and I think you're going to enjoy the interview. So with that, how are you doing today, Ron? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Excellent. We are thrilled to have you, uh, and thanks very much. Uh, Why don't we get started just by asking you to say a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a, a university professor? My name is Ron Suni, or Ronald Grigor Suni is what I signed my books with. Uh, and years ago, uh, thanks to family background, I was born an Armenian in America, uh, and listening at the dinner table to my father's uh, stories about his life in what was then the Tsarist Empire. Uh, he lived in Tbilisi, Tiflis, what is now the capital of Georgia. Uh, came to the United States after the revolution, I got really interested in that part of the world. And so after studying at Swarthmore College and Columbia University, getting my PhD from Columbia, uh, I started teaching at Oberlin College in Ohio uh, and was basically a Russian and Soviet historian, but interested primarily in the non-Russian peoples, which generally uh, Soviet historians we're not so interested in most of the people in my profession at that time were studying Russia proper or the top of society, uh, the, the Kremlin, things like that. And uh, my interest took me to the Caucasus, where my ancestors had come from. And my first book was, in fact, about the revolution in the city of Baku, which is now the capital of Azerbaijan. And years later, after teaching at Oberlin for 13 years, I was invited to come to the University of Michigan as the Alex Manukian Professor of Modern Armenian History, chaired professorship in Armenian history. Uh, and I started really emphasizing Armenian history and the history of the Caucasus. Uh, the, the Odyssey goes into odd odd uh, trajectories at that point. <laughs> when the Soviet Union began to collapse and when Armenians, Georgians, and other peoples of the periphery were in revolt against the central government during the Gorbachev years, the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, 
suddenly I was propelled into the sort of spotlight, unexpected spotlight. So here I was doing this periphery that no one seemed to be interested in, and suddenly the periphery made me temporarily famous, let's say, for a year or so. Uh, and suddenly I'm getting calls from, you know, this university, that university, CBS News, PBS, McNeil Lair Report, and then, of all things, the CIA, the State Department, the, the Defense Department, to talk about what's going on in that part of the world, because few people knew. And as a result of that momentary uh, celebrity, I was invited to come to the University of Chicago, which was a wonderful time in my life, as a political scientist. Hmm. And so for 11 years, living in Ann Arbor and commuting, uh, I taught uh, in political science and then history at the University of Chicago. And eventually, uh, I was invited to come back to Michigan, make my life a little easier, uh, which I did. And now I'm doing primarily Russian history and this long and uh, interesting project on the Armenian Genocide. I said in the uh, the pre-interview that I was from Michigan, and I actually went to undergrad at Michigan State, and uh, I had a number of friends who went to undergrad at Eastern Michigan, and they taught me to refer to the University of Michigan as West Ipsy Tech. Okay, we're all members of the same big Michigan family. <laughs> Indeed. Um, this book, uh, it, it strikes me as a little bit unusual in terms of structure, in, in a telling way, in that most edited volumes have a couple essays about historiography, and they usually come at the end. But you've got the essays about historiography at the beginning, and that that suggests to me one of the larger dynamics of this discussion about Armenia, that the, that the, that the historiography of this event has been politically contested in a way that's somewhat unusual. Can you talk a little bit and explain the conflicts uh, the, the, the conflicts that have emerged politically and intellectually over the study of the destruction of the Armenians? That's a very good question and a very good insight, uh, because I, it hadn't occurred to me that we made a deliberate decision to put the historiography at the beginning rather than the end, uh, and that that was, that was unusual. But it makes a lot of sense now that, that you, you pose the question that particular way. When we came to this, this project, Basically, Armenian studies and Turkish studies, and particularly the question of 1915, what uh, is largely referred to by most scholars as the Armenian Genocide, was not only hotly contested, but was being deliberately distorted by official government campaigns and allied, I call them pseudo-scholars, uh, who were saying that there was no Armenian genocide, that though there were some unfortunate massacres and deportations, it was largely a result of a civil war between uh, the, the, the Turkish state, which was defending itself against rebellious, uh, seditious, treacherous Armenians. All in the context of World War I, the Russian invasion from the Caucasus, and the uh, allied British uh, Australian-New Zealand attack uh, in the western part of the Ottoman Empire at Gallipoli. So uh, this, the very story that we were inheriting was fought, was absolutely divided between, uh, on one side, uh, the Turkish, uh, I will call them denialists, 
who were arguing that these were not deliberately initiated deportations and massacres. They were not aimed at eliminating uh, the Armenians as a presence in the Ottoman Empire, uh, but rather a legitimate, rational response to a, a rebellion at a time of war. And on the other side, the Armenians uh, making the claim that, in fact, this was a state-initiated massive deportation and murder of a civilian population uh, to eliminate its potential for any resistance or a play in, uh, and participation in Turkish politics. So you can see there was this huge cleavage. And that is, was the motivation for us beginning with the, telling that story and how that story has evolved over the last now nearly 100 years to the present time, and why any scholarly intervention into this debate also would be considered political and in some ways prejudiced. So we were trying to move beyond that, to step out of this political debate, to examine the actual facts. What can archives, memoirs, missionary reports tell us about the events and the, uh, the initiating uh, causes the motivations of the perpetrators and the role of those who eventually became victims as well. And you use the plural pronoun. You say we. Say something about the prehistory of this book. Where does this emerge from? That's the most interesting thing. That is, um, I, I can begin with a kind of personal story. That is, mm -hmm. uh, in, in 1998, I was invited to go to Turkey, to Istanbul, to give a talk uh, by one of my former students here at the University of Michigan. He was teaching at a private university, Coach University, and he said, come, I have some money, you know, I want you to give a talk. And I said, well, if I come to Istanbul, I'm going to talk about the Armenian Genocide, which at that time was really illegal. It was actually dangerous hmm. to talk about it. And he said to me, oh, well, you talk about what you want. I'm leaving Istanbul anyway pretty soon. <laughs> so, you know, I mentioned it to my colleague here at Michigan, a Turkish historical sociologist, Mugay Gerçek. And I said, Mugay, you know, is it safe to go to Turkey and to do this? And Mugay, who is well-placed in Turkish society, though very critical of the current politics and the historiography, Mugay said to me, oh, Ron, don't worry. If anything happens to you in Turkey, we can get you out. <laughs> Which wasn't exactly the assurance that I had been looking for. But I was already committed and had uh, been speaking and writing about the genocide uh, up to that time. And I was interested in bridging the gap between these two antagonistic historiographies, these two overly politicized views. So I decided to go. I flew to Istanbul. And I went right to the university from the airport, quite jet-lagged. Uh, there were several hundred people in the hall, mostly students, some faculty. And I was introduced. I mean, I really had no time even to freshen up. And I launched into my talk. And as I gave the talk, and I mentioned that the Ottoman government, the Turkish Ottoman government, had in 1915 initiated these deportations, which eventually resulted in mass murder and massacres, my voice went out into this auditorium with no reverberation. There was absolute silence. Huh. And it was quite stunning. 
And those several hundred students listened attentively. They probably knew very little about this. Some were actually Armenians, Turkish Armenians, Armenians who lived in Turkey. Some faculty left the room. Uh, but at the end, I got the most interesting, uh, intelligent, un, uh, un, unantagonistic questions from the audience. I was quite impressed, and we had a real dialogue. And even after that, one newspaper, Gazette Bazaar, took an interview with me. Now, they sort of distorted what I said at the time, but still, this, this was becoming a public event. So when I returned to Michigan, I met with Miguel and some other colleagues, my Armenian colleague, Kevok Bardakshian and others, and I said, we really need to do something about this. Uh, we need to start uh, discussing uh, with, with Turkish scholars, Armenian scholars, Kurdish scholars, and others what went on. So we organized the very first meeting in, in the year 2000 in the, at the University of Chicago, where I was teaching at the moment. Very, very trepidatious about what would happen. I remember that day. We even had some security around. Uh, and Turkish scholars came. Some Armenians came. Armenians were uh, some of the most important scholars in genocide studies uh, at the time. Armenians were not willing to come at first because they thought that mm. the genocide should be recognized before we had the dialogue. And I was saying that the dialogue was going to lead to the, the understanding of what these events were and uh, so forth. So in any case, we had the meeting and it was amazing from the very first statements by such scholars as Halil Berkay, now of Sabanja University, uh, uh, and others, Tanur Akjam, who was one of the pioneering uh, Turkish scholars uh, who had been, in a sense, driven out of Turkey for political activities, and now has been one of the key people writing about the events. He was there. Uh, it was it was quite extraordinary. And, and we began this dialogue. And from the dialogue, came what I would call a community of scholars who were willing to come back to do fundamental research. Uh, and we've now had eight of these meetings in various parts of the world. And very importantly, uh, in uh, 2005, the Turkish scholars, largely members of our group, plus the very important Armenian-Turkish journalist, Haran Dink, that name will come up again, Mm -hmm. uh, Haran Dink, who we had brought to our meetings and who uh, participated actively in our uh, workshops, had their own meeting. The Turks met in Istanbul. The government tried to close the meeting, but they allowed it finally to go on. And they met and published their own book on uh, on these events of 1915. So this thing is now, you know, mushroomed. We effectively, along with many other secular trends going on in Turkish society and Armenian society have effectively changed the nature of the discussion about the genocide. I'm, I'm reminded uh, one of my professional interests is Rwanda, and, mm -hmm. and there is a significant debate, or at least let me rephrase that. There are some historians who would suggest that the genocide in Rwanda was prompted by Something like a civil war and a fear of the mine of, of the Tutsis, the minority uh, among the majority Hutus, and yet you have no debate about whether Rwanda was a genocide or any attempt to suppress discussion of Rwanda. What what is it about Turkey that has led to this 
this effort to contest this claim about gen- that, that it's genocide? This is a very deep-seated uh, problem. And I've been attempting, and my colleagues have been attempting to understand it both politically and, importantly, psychologically. The Turkish Empire, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, collapsed after World War I. By 1923, it had been uh, metamorphosed, changed into the Turkish Republic under Kemal Ataturk. The end of the empire, which was a multinational uh, polity that included uh, millions of Arabs, Greeks, Armenians, Jews, Kurds, etc., eventually transformed into a Turkish nation-state in which the ruling ideology was that all the people in that new republic were, in a sense, Turks. Uh, Not Kurds, not Armenians, but now they were Turks. And uh, that republic was formed and made possible in a way by, one, the severing off by imperialism and by Arab revolt of the Arab lands, the deportation and massacre of hundreds of uh, thousands, uh, a million uh, uh, Armenians, and the eventual Turkish-Greek uh, War, which ended in the expulsion of many of the Anatolian and Aegean uh, Greeks. So Turkey, after World War I, became far more homogeneous, largely Muslim, Turkish, and Kurdish, than it had been before. So the Republic was built, essentially, on a fundamental crime, on the expulsion murder of Armenians, Greeks, uh, and others. That's hard to accept as the founding act of what in Turkey is called the war for independence. Now, the Turks, uh, one, to their credit, in fact, fought bravely to preserve their, as they call it, homeland in Anatolia uh, and uh, recapture Istanbul, defeat the foreign forces, etc. So there's a, right there, there's a kind of uh, complex history of the founding of this republic. But it's hard for the Turkish official narrative and for historiography in the government to recognize and accept that the foundational period of their own state, the legitimation of their own state, involved mass murder expulsion and deportation. Now, that's not unlike the making of other states. You know, I remind us how the United States was founded and what crimes were committed against Native Americans or how Australia was founded and what crimes were committed against Aborigines or in our own time, the foundation of Israel and the expulsion of the Palestinians. So these are things that, that governments and official historians, organic intellectuals of the state, don't want to recognize, but it is in fact the task of academic historians and critical intellectuals to recognize what kinds of horrors in fact led to the making of modern nation states. So one of the threads in in some of these essays, uh, sometimes made explicit, sometimes not, is the relationship or is 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 what you might call the the, the project of the Ottoman government in and around the First World War. Another way to phrase that is, what is the relationship between the killing of the Armenians and the expulsion of the Greeks and 
is it reasonable to talk about this as, as an intentional project or are these separate events perhaps related but conceived of differently for different goals? Very good question. I would say as a result of our discussions in, at, in Watts that we have come to a kind of uh, a conditional conclusion in a way, a tentative conclusion, that there was no blueprint let's say, before World War I, by the Young Turks, nationalist as they were, to eliminate physically these various populations. Uh, they wanted to control them. They wanted to reduce their political uh, power, perhaps. But they wanted to increase and Turkify uh, more parts of their empire. But, but there was no clear project uh, in the uh, late Ottoman period to make a kind of Turkish national state, a la Kemal. That is, this is not Kemalism avant la lettre. This is a different project. The young Turks, rather than uh, uh, nation makers, I would say, were empire preservers. Mm. They wanted to have the Arabs in the empire. Now, we can see a lot of evidence from some of the work of the people that, that are in this project, like the young Kurdish scholar, Fouad Dundar, who works on demography, we can see that there was, a, there was a desire by the young Turks just before, and particularly in World War One, during World War One, to increase the Islamic and the Muslim aspects of this, uh, Islamic, Muslim, and Turkic aspects of the empire, to make it more Turkish, to reduce in various areas the, uh, the percentage of Armenians uh, uh, to move the Greeks away from the Aegean coast in case there was a war with Greek Greece. So there is, there are demo, you know quite quite serious demographic policies, human uh, population engineering that that is part of the imaginary of of the uh, of the Young Turks. Uh, so that's part of the project. Uh, but there were alternatives to genocide. There were various kinds of negotiations. But the actual physical elimination of the Armenians occurs not so much because there was this clear blueprint earlier to, to, to physically eliminate them, but I would argue, and I try to argue this in some of my essays, I would argue that what had emerged in the late Ottoman period and becomes particularly salient during World War I is what I call a particular affective disposition of the Young Turks, a emotional uh, approach or an emotional environment in which they have constructed non-Muslims, non-Turks, particularly the Armenians at first, later the Greeks, they've constructed them as a hostile, foreign, alien, subversive element that is presenting, particularly in 1915, an existential threat to the continuation and maintenance of the empire in the time of war. Once that affective disposition and construction of this existential threat occurs, then there's a certain permissiveness to moving them physically uh, and eventually uh, murdering them in the caravans that are driven into the desert. And at the end, at their zor, where the, the survivors that, uh, live as they they reach the Syrian desert. So, uh, 
what I see is, and what many of the scholars, Michael Mann, who was in our some at uh, one of our meetings and others, other other uh, elsewhere on on the genocide, what others have seen is a steady radicalization over time of intentions and policies of the young Turk government. First, from moving Armenian, from eliminating uh, the, the young men, the soldiers, uh, demobilizing them, putting them in work battalions. Then the caravans of old people, women and children, then the massacres on the road, and then finally the killings uh, at the end of the road uh, in, in the Syrian desert. A radicalization of a policy that accumulatedly, uh, through uh, the, the aims of, of the young Turks to eliminate the Armenians as any possible threat, can only be considered a genocide. I'm struck, and, and, and you mentioned Michael Mann, and, and Donald Bloxham contributes to right. this volume, uh, and, and there are some others. That I, I'm reminded of the kind of historiograph, historiographical evolution of thinking about the Holocaust, right. uh, and, and I think there's a the, the broad similarity in the way scholars interpret that is, is, is your summary of the evolution of, of policy toward the Armenians. To what extent, or maybe I should say, what how do you see your conclusions contributing to broader understandings about mass violence and the origins of mass violence? I would say that, first of all, you're absolutely right that, that clearly these historiographies, you know, blend into each other and influence yeah. each other. And so there's the whole idea of radicalization of a process of genocide itself being a messy project. That There isn't sort of an initial act, an initial a smoking gun or intention or policy document. Uh, in the Armenian case, we have no Vansi uh, conference or anything of that yeah. sort. But we, you know, you, you the, the accumulation of documentation, and we have huge amounts of archival material, both Turkish, German, American, etc., uh, that leads you to this conclusion, if you're honest, that there's intentionality here, and these things are being carried out haphazardly often, but also systematically, uh, that local governors are involved in it, uh, that uh, though it's a messy, messy project, uh, by when you put everything together, it's clearly genocidal. Uh, that seems to me a very powerful contribution to the comparative study of genocide, that there may be cases where some government leader you know, decides he wants to eliminate a particular uh, national, ethnic, religious, cultural group. Uh, and that would be, you know, a nice uh, kind of neat uh, example of a genocide. Could be a small number, but if it's defined as an intentional elimination of a cultural, religious, ethnic group, that would constitute genocide if it leads to mass killing, uh, not just removal, which would be, I think, more in the line of ethnic cleansing. Uh, but the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust itself, when you look at what goes on in Eastern Europe uh, and Poland during the Second World War, Rwanda, you know more about that than I, uh, it's this much more messy, uh, confused, complex, radicalizing process uh, once the scent of blood comes into the air, once a, as a, a certain degree of permissiveness uh, becomes possible, when limits on these illegalities and crimes are eliminated, that you have what I would call a genocidal process. And, and you talk about how, or you mentioned how they, the Young Turks saw the existence of the Armenians and others as an existential threat. Several of the essays in your volume address 
in a sense, that issue to address the behavior of the Armenians, either in specific case studies or more broadly, uh, and, and not just the Armenians, but others. What is the, the, the relationship between the Armenians, just to take a simple example, and, or, or perhaps a, a single example, the Armenians and the Ottoman government, and to what extent is there an, uh, an effort by the Armenians to oppose the Ottoman government? That's a good question, because I would say the earlier uh, historiography before uh, the more recent period, the last 10, 15 years, has been a very Manichaean uh, division between good Armenians and bad Turks. So Turks are perpetrators, Armenians are victims. So that sort of takes all initiative, all agency uh, out of the hands of the Armenians altogether. And we've tried to redress that. Now, in no sense are we laying blame on the victims. In no sense are we saying that the Armenians, you know, because it's some, it's in a few instances they tried to protect themselves or they had their own interests, somehow deserved to be uh, murdered en masse. But Armenians were actors in the Ottoman Empire, uh, significant actors, in fact. So Armenians a small Christian population, most of the Armenians were peasants out in Anatolia, but a, a very important number lived in the western part of the empire or in towns in the east, in Istanbul, in Izmir, and were uh, wealthy, educated, sent their children off to European schools, had their own uh, institutions, they they survived, they thrived even in the Ottoman Empire. They were well connected to Europe, they were well connected to Russia, uh, and they, as a result of their prominent position of the Aras, of the Amiras, of the Esnafs, the merchants, the big bankers, the goldsmiths, the architect, so the, the Sultan architect was an Armenian, the, uh, the Balyan family built the Domobace Palace, etc. Um, because of this visibility of this group of Armenians, not, uh, not uh, perfectly understandably, you would say, uh, there was resentment on the part of Muslims about why is this Gavur, this unfaithful group, in fact, doing better than we, right? So there was some, the very visibility and success of Armenians within some of the cities and towns of, of, of the Ottoman Empire uh, brought this kind of resentment and envy down on the Armenians. That was one of the ingredients in what I'm calling this affective disposition, this emotional environment that eventually will result in, in this terrible bloodletting. Uh, so uh, Armenians were elements. They had political parties. The young Turks themselves envied and were so slightly uh, uh, afraid of the Armenian political committees that existed before the overthrow of, of uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid II in 1908. Uh, so they were active, and they played a role in the parliament. Many prominent Armenian writers were friends of young Turk leaders, uh, who would later uh, have them murdered. So uh, one has to realize that there's a very complex relationship between the Armenian elite which had, by the way, in the Ottoman Empire, its own constitution, its own rights, limited rights within the Millet system, within the system of, of religiously defined groups in the empire. Uh, indeed, as late as 1912, for a brief period, the foreign minister of the Ottoman Empire was an Armenian. 
by the next year when the Young Turk coup occurred uh, and the triumvirate that would later carry out the genocide came to power, the Armenian position began to deteriorate uh, quite rapidly. One of the, the, the I, all of these are wonderful essays, but but in particular, I was just fascinated by the discussion of the uh, the revolt or the uprising or the even the debate of the uprising in the town of I, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right Zaytun is that correct right Zaytun yeah and I thought that was a wonderfully kind of subtle thoughtful examination of the splits even during the war within the Armenian population about how to respond to the pressure and persecution of of the Ottoman government. Can you say something about how uh, how Armenians tried to respond to this? That's also a very good question because uh, the, the situation, what I described in the, in the answer to your last question was the yeah. situation among elites in the West. Now, if you move mm -hmm. to Eastern Anatolia, which is the most backward part of of, of that of the Turkish uh, Kurdish Armenian part of of, of the Ottoman Empire, uh, there the situation is quite quite complex. There you have a kind of three cornered struggle going on between Armenians who are one settled farmers, townsmen, craftsmen, etc., uh, Turkish officials, and some Turks who live in the area. And Kurdish nomads, Kurdish tribesmen, and uh, Kurdish uh, Azars and overlords, who in many ways held Armenian peasants for quite a long time in some kind of, you could call it, semi-feudal servitude. So there's a complex situation. Armenians are, in this period, upwardly mobile. Many have gone abroad. They've sent money back to buy land uh, in the area. And, the, and in some ways, the Armenian ambitions threaten the more traditional uh, Kurdish uh, rule over these lands and their predations uh, against the Armenians. The Turkish state, on the other hand, in order to govern this undergoverned area of eastern Anatolia, arms the Kurds in so-called Hamidia regiments in the late 19th century and supports the Kurds and, and neglects the, the uh, various actions that they take against Armenians. So already there's a struggle going on. And in some instances, like the sort of mountain fortress of this town of Zeytun or in Sassoon or some other places, Armenians resist uh, new taxes or predations uh, of the Kurds. And then that's interpreted by the Kurds and by the Turkish government as rebellion. Uh, there's no redress in the system for these Armenians, and so occasionally they use armed resistance. And uh, things come down and hard on the Armenians, as in the 1894-1896 massacres, uh, when tens of thousands of Armenians were killed by these Turkish governmental reg regiments and the Hamidia regiments as well. It's after those massacres that my mother's mother, my grandmother, uh, fled Turkey with her family and came to the United States. So, uh, it's not that Armenians are sitting on their hands and simply accepting uh, in, uh, the, the violence that is used against them. There are instances of rebellion and or resistance, you could say. And it, it's those instances of resistance, or let's say uh, the fact that during World War One, some Armenians, uh, maybe a lot of Armenians, preferred the Russians, and some Armenians actually went over to help the Russians a very small number 
uh, tens of thousands, I mean, uh, were conscripted into the Ottoman Empire and were ready to fight on the Ottoman side before they were turned into work battalions. So uh, those examples will be used by the apologists of the genocide, by the deniers, to try to say, ah, you see, there was actual resistance. My view is that Armenians, uh, the Turks believe that Armenians were an existential threat. Many Armenians would like to believe, yes, we did present some kind of, you know, strong hand against the Turks. My view is that one has to understand that threat is a perception. Threat is the view of an, uh, uh, that you have of an opponent. Uh, and in my view, the Turkish overestimation of the threat that they, they faced from Armenians, in fact, led them to carry out this genocidal policy. That there was uh, far less threat and more enlightened policies on the part of the, the, the Turks could have eliminated that threat almost altogether. And one of the consequences seems to me, uh, and, and, and again, in other genocides, this has been discussed, of, of, of saying or, 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 or suggesting that we need to understand the evolution of this genocide as evolutionary rather than intentionalist, to steal a word from the Holocaust debate, uh, is precisely the difficulty the targeted groups have of figuring out how to respond when the policy against them happens or is changing so rapidly. What are what is the Armenian perception of what the intentions of the Ottoman government is in the in the First World War? Well, I would say that in the general Armenian population or among some older scholars, there is certainly the view that there was intentionality. Uh, one very prominent scholar believes there was even documentation that before World War One. As early as 1910, it's clear that the young Turks wanted to eliminate the Armenians. I would say that our group, uh, our, our group, which we call WATS, the Workshop in Armenian Turkish Scholarship, which is ongoing, uh, this group has really come to the conclusion that there was no blueprint for genocide, that the genocide resulted from a number of contingent and uh, moments as particular historical conjuncture early in World War One, that led then to this escalation, radicalization of policies that eventually led to these mass murders. It's a very different thing. Um, it's very important, it seems to me, that we move away from any kind of essentializing view of the Turks. That is, thinking that the Turks are a consistent, single, anti-Armenian, murderous group of people. That's what we've been trying to fight against uh, in, in the Watts group. The view of some earlier Armenian scholars, and I think they may still be held among Ar uh, Armenians and others in the community, is that all of the massacres you see in the Turkish Empire, the 1894-96 massacres under Abdul Hamid, the 1906 events in Adana in which 20,000 Armenians are killed, and then the genocide of 1915, as well as what takes place in the earlier, uh, the later period in, in uh, eastern Anatolia around Cilicia near the Syrian border, those massacres as well, all of those, uh, for those whole 20, 30 years, are part of a single genocidal process. That is a popular view. That's a view that we, in our group, have tried to disaggregate, to show that they're different in, uh, events, in some ways related, but different. 
1894-96 massacres are a kind of prophylactic repression. They are a kind of preventive violence in the sense that Abdul Hamid wanted to put down the Armenians, prevent revolt, return the situation to the status quo ante where the Turks and Kurds rule. That's very different from the revolutionary policy of the genocide, which is to eliminate Armenians and change completely the demographic balance in the eastern Anatolian provinces. That's again different from 1909, which was a relatively spontaneous uh, uh, revolt that began against the young Turks in the city of Adana on, on the, the Mediterranean. Well, you know, each of these things, it seems to me, uh, shouldn't be homogenized uh, and into a single event, but be seen as discrete. Because if you do see them as sort of one process, then you end up thinking, ah, this is all about the terrible Turk. This is what Turks do. Turks are those people who massacre Armenians. And that's precisely what we've been trying to get away from. And, and I'm glad you said that. That's a really important point. And, and so let me rephrase my question or maybe put my question in a different frame. Given that perspective after the fact, what are Armenians in 1915 who have been confronted with this series of massacres? Do they see what's happening in 1915 as fundamentally different from the experience they have had or their fathers have had or their grandfathers have had in the previous 30 years? Very good question. Hard to get to that mentality, but I would say they probably do see these things as related. That is, they're living under a government that has uh, been in some ways not only bad when it governs, but even worse when it doesn't govern and allows Kurds and others to act on their own. Uh, they, it's not accidental that after each of these massacres, uh, Armenians then emigrated to the United States, to Worcester, Massachusetts, to Boston, to Philadelphia, to Fresno, to, you know, and we're still emigrating, in fact. But uh, that, it's not accidental that they, they begin to see a hopelessness uh, for minorities to survive or succeed in the Ottoman Empire. So as I said, my mother's mother emigrated after the 1894-96 massacres. My grandfather, my mother's father, emigrated after the 1909 massacres. Hmm. And many other of our relatives, those that were survived, and most did not survive in 1915, my grandfather's family was, was destroyed, but a few who survived, who made it to Iraq, eventually we brought to the United States. So uh, there was that kind of hopelessness. At the same time, what we, we forget is there are two other things that happened. One, many Armenians wanted to stay in their own country, wanted to stay in the Ottoman Empire, or even wanted to stay in the uh, Kemalist Republic, despite all of the, the difficulties of that life. And there's still a small Armenian community today, largely in Istanbul, uh, that, that maintains its life, that's trying to make its presence known, that's uh, allied with more progressive Turkish uh, uh, intellectuals and, and public figures to try to make Turkey a more cosmopolitan, more tolerant, more democratic society. And the second thing is, many Armenians survived the genocide by being, uh, children and women particularly, almost exclusively, by being adopted or enslaved by Turks and Kurds uh, and Arabs in Eastern Anatolia. That is, not everyone was killed. 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands were killed, but some survived within Turkey, and we're finding now those survivors, survivors, or the children of the survivors who are coming out in Turkey today. And it's a fascinating process. A very important woman, a lawyer uh, for the Hrant Dink family after Hrant was murdered by a Turkish nationalist, Feti um, Çetin uh, 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 has published a book called Ananem, which means from Turkish, My Grandmother, in which this Turkish woman discovers that her grandmother was in fact an Armenian who had been uh, saved, but was forced to conserve, could, could convert to Islam. And so every second Kurdish Turkish, uh, tra- taxi driver that I met in Istanbul years in the last few years tells me, oh no, my grandmother was Armenian too. Huh. So there, there's a you've got a chapter with Russia deals with her, and then two chapters that deal with Germany, and that that to my eye anyway don't entirely agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm wondering what you can say about the role of foreign powers in events in the Ottoman Empire during the war. Well, uh, it's clear you've read uh, Donald Bratton's work, so you know uh, this work on the great game of genocide, and, and mm-hmm. Donald does a beautiful job. Uh, he has an essay in our book, but in his various books, uh, where he shows the international context, yeah. that is, the rivalry between the great imperial powers, Russia, Britain, uh, Austro-Hungary, Germany, and Turkey, in this period, and how that influences the so-called Armenian question. And the Germans specifically... Germany, of course, was moving into the Ottoman Empire. This was up for grabs. Uh, There were two areas where the imperialists were uh, trying to sort of get a foothold. It was in the Ottoman Empire and in the Far East. The Far East crisis, of course, leads to the Russo-Japanese War of 1945. And the conflicts over the Ottoman Empire lead to a series of wars, the Balkan Wars uh, of, of the period right before World War I. And then right into World War One as well. The Germans are moving in. They're very influential uh, in the Ottoman Empire. They're running the, the Turkish army. They're selling them battleships, etc. And uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Sultan, and, I mean, I'm sorry, the Young Turks eventually decide to ally with the Germans and join the uh, Central Powers in, in the First World War. Now, Many historians would love to make a lot about that German connection, because the German connection would then link the Ottoman, the, the Ottoman massacres and deportations and genocide of the Armenians prior to the Holocaust, mm-hmm. even connect some figures, and backward to the genocide of the Herrera in southwest Africa. So you could see a German pattern a kind of German genocidal intentionality from Southwest Africa through the Turkish massacres to, to the Holocaust. And that's a, that's a powerful argument, and people have argued that. Now, I would say that our historians and our investigations have said one should be quite wary and suspicious of that kind of uh, simple connection. There were Germans involved in Turkey at the time. There were some Germans who, in fact, Participated in, or at least uh, turned the, uh, to look the other way while the uh, massacres were occurring. The Kaiser himself uh, knew what was going on and told uh, his officials not to intervene, that the Turks were our allies and the war was more important, etc. 
on the other hand, we know that some uh, Germans on the uh, Berlin to Baghdad Railroad and other parts of the empire, missionaries, uh, the humanitarian Johannes uh, Lepsius, in fact, tried to prevent the genocide or saved Armenians or tried to publicize it in the West so that uh, it would be uh, better known and perhaps could be uh, uh, ameliorated. So it's a complex situation, and uh, Germans as, as initiators or deeply involved in the genocide uh, is probably not true and, and is probably one of the myths and shibboleths of these events which should be buried. This is a wonderful book. Where do historians of, of, of this crisis go next? What, what, what gaps are left to fill in the historiography? Oh, quite a few, and I hope to do part of that myself, because uh, <laughs> I'm about to start working at the U.S. Holocaust Museum and then the American Academy in Berlin on, on a uh, short monograph on the genocide, trying to bring together what we know so far and do a synthetic uh, single volume uh, bringing the, the most recent findings uh, because we have enormous amounts of, of available documentation now. I don't think in a single lifetime you could read everything that's, that's now becoming uh, available uh, with all the archives, and much of it is online, as a matter of fact. Uh, but there are lots of questions. There are local studies. There's a wonderful local study just done by Umit uh, Unger on the city of Diyarbakir, where which was one of the most terrible spots for the genocide. And by the way, it's the city where my mother's mother came from. She had left before this. Um, that, that, that is a wonderful study. Uh, my friend, Ayhan Akhtar of Bilgi University is also working on that area. Uh, Leila Nazi and one of our graduate students, Haidar Danici here in Michigan, are also working in that area today. Uh, my own daughter is interested in the aftermath of the genocide. She's studying anthropology at UCLA and is looking at you know, how do Kurds, Turks, and Armenians remember what went on there? What is the role of memory here? Uh, Miguel Gurchek, my colleague, is doing a book right now, uh, which should come out in a year or so, on all the hundreds of memoirs in Turkish by Turkish uh, 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 officials and others uh, about these events, showing the various stages of denial that have gone on for the last hundred years. We're approaching the 100th anniversary in 2015 of these events, and I think there's be, there'll be a huge spate of new work coming out, documentation, uh, synthetic accounts, interpretations. Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done. Just as in Holocaust studies, it really never ends. That's the nature of history writing. It keeps us all, all employed. In favor of keeping us employed. We've taken you a lot of your time. I, I, I thank you so much. Thank you. Do you have a sense of when the book will come out? Uh, I hope your it's book, 2015 so that it'll reverberate at least at the moment of anniversary. Excellent. That's my goal. Cool. Yes. Well, I hope when it comes out, you'll be willing to come on again and talk to it's us. Great Excellent. I thank you so much, and I wish you a great day. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to an interview with Ron Suni, an editor of the recent collection, A Question of Genocide, Armenians and Turks at the End of the Ottoman Empire. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I invite you to come back next time when I'll interview Dan Stone about his book, Histories of the Holocaust. In the meantime, if you'd like to listen to previous podcasts, 
You may do so through iTunes or directly from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Until then, I hope you have a great week.